If you would, please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63, as we continue through the series, uh, Seeing Christ Through the Eyes of Isaiah. Uh, it's really a, a survey. We're taking chunks uh, of Isaiah at a time. I'm just going to zero in on chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Uh, so there'll be one more sermon from Isaiah before we start a new series. And with the Lord Jesus, we are asking that the Lord would, would take his word and sanctify us through the truth of God's word, because God's word is truth. And that's what will refine us. That's what will help us to see more clearly our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, to see our own condition, to see the need of our neighbors. So reading now from Isaiah chapter 63, from the English Standard Version. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Please pray with me. Our God and Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, for the beauty of your word, but also the fierce awesomeness of your word, Father. It frightens us to consider the day of the Lord, to consider the day of vengeance, but then also, Lord, to see the day of salvation that goes hand in hand. Father, help us to, to find our refuge, to find our security in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone and no one else, no thing else. Father, we pray that through your word that you would speak that you would draw near your people, that you would help them to worship the Lord Jesus in spirit and truth. We pray this in his name. Amen. So it was about a half century ago, uh, the nation, the world was experiencing a, a time of unrest. And at, at the time, it probably seemed unprecedented. And you wondered what was going to happen next. It was a time of social change. And being attracted to music and, and words, poetry, things like that. So there was a song that really caught the attention of many and it, because it expressed the heart of people at that time. The song was called, I'd Love to Change the World. And the song lamented, lamented social problems, uh, economic inequalities, a lack of goodness, it, it, seeming just insanity 
that was going on around the world. And you could easily fast forward to today and draw many parallels. Uh, it sounds a lot like what we may be experiencing today. And the chorus of the song went something like this. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do, so I'll leave it up to you. It's like, wow, what a hopeful song, right? But it's also an expression of what do, we, what do you do with all of the problems? I mean, no one disagrees that the world has problems, many problems, difficult problems. We don't even have to look past our own families to see problems. And we think, what do we do? Well, there's problems with people. There's problems with places. There's problems with things. There's problems all around us. Now, the, the people problems, some might tell you, is they can be solved in two different ways. I, I could either remove the problem people or I can control the problem people, and that will fix my people problems. Now, some might tell you there's problems in certain places, and so I could either move to this ideal place that's going to be better than anywhere else, or I can just try to fix the place that I'm living in. But then what happens? The problem people show up, and then all of a sudden, the place I'm living is not what I thought it would be, and then I'm frustrated by that. And then, of course, there's things. There's the internet, there's social media, there's philosophies, there's ideas, there's all these things floating around. There's more problems than you could even count. So no one disagrees that the world has problems. But the question on the table is, how do you solve it? How do you fix it? How do you save the world? So tonight, we're going to consider that question. How? How would you save the world? And we're going to consider three smaller questions that support it. If you could save the world, whom would you send to save it? How would you do it? And lastly, why would you do it the way you're doing it? Right? Who, whom would you send? How would you do it? And why would you do it that way? Well, our, our Sunday evening services are designed to help us to worship the Lord and set apart his, his whole day for a whole day of worship. And that includes sometimes mission reports. It includes uh, concerts of prayer. Uh, and it also includes a sermon series, which presently we're in the book of Isaiah that we're going through. So since we're not in Isaiah every week, I just want to do a little bit of a recap so you have some context of where we are. And first, the, the big takeaway, realize that, that the book of Isaiah is quoted almost the, uh, it's almost the most quoted book that's in the New Testament. Uh, the Psalms is the only one that's, that's quoted more often, but Isaiah is explicitly quoted 55 times in the New Testament. So it's a hugely important book in the New Testament. So it, it's one that we definitely want to be very familiar with. And commentator uh, Alec uh, Matir gives us this, this outline of Isaiah. So he gives us really Isaiah in three parts. And he breaks it up into three smaller books. He says the first book, the first 37 chapters, is the book of the king. The book of the king. The second chapter is 
uh, or the second book is the book of the servant. Uh, and in this last section that we're in, chapters 55 through 66 of Isaiah, the last section is the book of the anointed conqueror. So you think of a king, a servant, and an, an anointed conqueror, and it seems at first glance, this is three different people. So who is he talking about? Because a king is somebody who is presently ruling a nation. An anointed conqueror is one who has been called to go and, and to take over a nation, to, to take over and establish a nation. And then a servant doesn't seem like a king or a conqueror. But in fact, these three people, the king, the servant, and the anointed conqueror are the same person. They are the same one. Isaiah is describing the one whom the Lord God has chosen to rule the nations. So rather than try to change the truth of what God's word says or to imagine it differently, right, the spirit of the living God is inviting us to worship in the reality that he has already created, to enter into his reality, not to create our own, and to believe the word of God, to submit our whole lives to it, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to see this servant king, this anointed conqueror, to see him with eyes of faith. So let's look at the first of the three questions. If you could save the world, whom would you send? Uh, the first verse in Isaiah 63, verse 1, says this. Who is this who comes from Edom? Who is this? Who is this? So what do we know about Edom from the Old Testament? Well, we know that, that Edom, the city of Basra, the country of Edom, uh, Edom first appears as a synonym for the person of Esau in Genesis chapter 25. And then both the Old and the New Testament give us this sense of rivalry between whom? Between Jacob and Esau. So we have this, this back and forth rivalry that's continuous. Uh, in Numbers chapter 20, the hostility continues. And this establishes a pattern for the future. And then you fast forward to Israel's kings and King Saul, we know, went to war with Edom. Uh, King David actually conquered and annexed Edom as part of the United Kingdom. And so you have to ask yourself, why would the anointed conqueror emerge from the place of the villain? Right? It seems, at first glance, it seems contradictory. Machir observes this. He says, expectations are baffled as you consider this striking figure who is approaching out of Edom. He's vividly and majestically dressed. He strides in greatness and strength. And he's, this is the embodiment. This person coming out of Edom, seemingly this is the embodiment of animosity against the Lord and against his people. But then Machir connects the dots for us. He says, the name Edom and the, the reddened garments of this anointed conqueror match each other, right? Because Edom means red and the reddened garments. So there's a consistency there. It's as if to say, where would one get his garments reddened as if to come out of the place of redness, out of Edom? 
And likewise, the city name of Basra means vintage. Where else would you tread a wine press but in Basra? And so it, it, from a biblical standpoint, this makes sense that he's coming out of there. But still, this seemingly is the place of the villain. Right. Returning to verse 1, the anointed conqueror is wearing crimsoned garments, but he's splendid in his apparel. He's marching in the greatness of his strength. His speech and actions are impressive. He's speaking in righteousness. He's mighty to save. And when I think of the phrase mighty to save, I think of the praise song that we sing very often from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord our God, he is with you. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will quiet you with his love. Now, when I'm singing that, though, I'm having visions of peace and rest and tranquility. And yet this one whom Isaiah is portraying, who is mighty to save, this is a frightening character. Imagine seeing him he, with crimson garments. So the, the, they're crimsoned, not because they're painted red, but because they're colored and covered in blood. He's marching in greatness and strength. This is a frightening character. This is not a calming character. The appearance generates questions. Verse 2, the question comes, why? Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? You might say, that's not how I would save the world. And so, fair enough. But the question remains, how would you? How would you fix the problems of the world? Right? How would you do it? And we're looking in verses 3 and 4 to look more closely. How? Would you do it? Notice in verse 3, continuing through verse 6, this is the Lord speaking. He is speaking for himself on his own behalf. No one is speaking for him. The Lord God answers the question that was asked in verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Your garments like one who treads in the winepress. Verse 3 gives us a vivid description of this anointed conqueror. He says, he alone, he alone is the one who is responsible. The people's lifeblood is spattered upon his clothes. It stains his garments. Why? Because this conqueror has trodden the winepress of God's wrath in his anger. What do we know about a winepress as we look in, in the scriptures? The winepress, obviously, the ancient device goes back to 4,000 B.C., and the, the purpose was to apply pressure to the grapes, to squeeze out the juice, and ultimately to create wine. Right? And, of course, the Bible warns against the abuse of wine, but, but wine is also associated with periods of celebration, of happiness. Wine makes the heart joyful and glad. But the wine press is used for more than simply celebration, right? The wine press is also a metaphor for God's judgment. The prophets like Jeremiah, Joel, and Isaiah, they speak of the wine press as a metaphor of God's instrument of judgment upon all who would reject his rule 
upon their lives. This is a fulfillment of the promise that goes all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis. Pursuing knowledge apart from the revealed will of God will lead in death, spiritual death as well as physical death. And all those who do so will surely die. This is the promise that God gives. To pursue any other rule upon my life is to invite the wrath of God. The book of Revelation, fast forwarding to Revelation chapter 14, pictures the judgment at the end of the age. Revelation 14 verses 18 through 20 reads like this. An angel called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle. Put in your sickle. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now the winepress is producing a river of blood. The wrath of God will produce a river of blood against all the enemies of the Lord God. And it will flow as deep as a horse's bridle. Now, that's not a technical term, and, and I'm not a farmhand, but if you consider the bridle on the head of a horse, a full-grown horse, roughly five or six feet, a, a river of blood, five or six feet deep, and then how long? 1,600 stadia, roughly 200 miles, 320 kilometers long. This is the result of the wrath of God poured out. The picture of judgment is undeniable. But then look again at verse 4. What's interesting is the Lord says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. The day of vengeance, the day of judgment, but then the day of redemption, the day of salvation. So those two, I think, generally speaking, we would tend to minimize the day of judgment, but focus upon the day of salvation. And yet the Lord is saying these two are inextricably linked. The two go hand in hand. How can that be? How could vengeance and salvation go hand in hand? And I think a contemporary example, contemporary parallel for us, is the Potsdam Declaration. The Potsdam Declaration, with, with Nazi Germany having surrendered two months earlier, right, the Allied leaders issue a statement on the 26th of July, 1945, and it defines the terms of surrender for the remaining aggressor, which is the Japanese Empire. It stated that if Japan did not surrender, the nation would face prompt and utter destruction. Well, history shows Japan refused the terms, and on August 6th and August 9th, respectively, atomic bombs were dropped upon Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And days later, 
Japan did surrender, effectively ending World War II. Now, inter interestingly, and I haven't dug deeply into this, but Wikipedia says that there is still much debate concerning the ethical and legal justification of the bombings. There's debate over whether, was this legally justified? Was it ethical? Was dropping those atomic bombs really the only way to solve this predicament? And without minimizing the great loss of life, the many lives that were lost, property lost, I think it's, it's unmistakable that those bombs signaled two equal and opposite realities. And yet they were very complementary realities. So picture yourself as a prisoner of war in a Pacific camp. The dropping of those bombs meant the hope of redemption, freedom from living in the shadow of death for, for however many days or months or years you were living as that prisoner. But if you were a Japanese soldier guarding those prisoners, those same bombs signaled the day of vengeance and the day of judgment both for you and for your nation. Jesus explained it like this in the third chapter of John's gospel. It begins with the very familiar verse, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that's, that's salvation. That's the verse we cling to and we should cling to as believers. And yet there's more to the story. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The gospel is like the Potsdam Declaration. The Lord offers one set of terms for those warring against his rule. And be sure of it, everyone born into this world, even one that seems as innocent as little Esther, Everyone born into this world is born a rebel against the will of the living God. The gospel is the power of God to save. The power of God to save from his wrath. For everyone who believes, but to those who refuse these terms of peace, the only terms of peace that God offers, all that remains is a certain judgment. Have you received this hope? Have you received these terms of peace? Have you accepted the terms of peace that the Lord Jesus offers through his life and death and resurrection? This is your hope of escaping God's wrath. And this brings us to the last of the three questions. If you could save the world, how would you do it? How would you do it? We noted the divine responsibility stated at the beginning of verse three. Verse three, the Lord says, I have done this. I alone have done it. That's because 
verse 5, tells us. Why has the Lord alone done this? It says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. The Lord looked, there was none. The ESV tells us that he was appalled that there was none to intervene that could save. The New American Standard says he was astonished that no one could save. The New English Translation says he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. And the New King James Version says he, he wondered over it. Shows us the range of that Hebrew word. But the Lord then does what no one else, what no one else is able or willing to do. Verse 5, so my own arm brought me salvation. My own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. How did the Lord do it? Well, the anointed conqueror shows a divine commitment to both salvation and vengeance. Salvation, the act of saving, of preserving from destruction, of danger, of calamity. It's the demonstration of mercy to one who is unable to save themselves. But this conqueror is also committed to vengeance. Vengeance is the infliction of pain upon another in return for an injury or an offense. It is the righting of a wrong, the balancing of the scales, the fixing of all the problems of the world. Moses himself was a picture of God's chosen, imperfect but yet a picture of God's anointed conqueror bringing deliverance to his people. In, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was one of the first deacons, explains this about Moses. Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's home. He was, it was a form of divine protection that the Lord provided. And then when Moses was about 40 years old, he visited his Hebrew countrymen, and he saw the injustice. He saw the suffering. He saw how difficult the life of his, his Hebrew countrymen was. And so he saw one of the Hebrews in an altercation with one of the Egyptians. And Moses avenged what was happening. happening. He, striked, he struck down the Egyptian who, who had wronged the Hebrew. And it says, why, why would Moses have done this? Well, Mo, Acts chapter 7, verse 25 says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation. He was giving them deliverance by his own hand, even as he took vengeance upon the Egyptian. But it says, but they did not understand what Moses was doing. And so the next time Moses tried to settle a dispute, they looked at him and said, well, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Will you try to kill us just like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses flees in fear for another 40 years as the Lord prepares him for the next opportunity for deliverance. See, Moses tried to bring deliverance in his own strength, but, but he was a picture of that anointed conqueror bringing vengeance and salvation. If the Lord did not bring 
salvation and vengeance in the manner he did, if he didn't come to display mercy and justice, then there was no other way and there was no other one who could do it. For the person who thinks that you've got a better way than the Lord God does, well, you're actively fighting against the rule of this great king. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, we're warned that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There's no other mediation. There's no other hope. But all it awaits is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But for anyone, anyone that will humble yourself before this almighty God, before this anointed conqueror, Romans 8 verse 1 gives us the promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Noah Webster explains that God's wrath in Scripture is his holy and just indignation against sin. Because he is holy, he is rightfully indignant and against the sin of those of his creation. And so the just punishment of every offense, of every crime, is the wrath of God. So when Romans 8 verse 1 declares that there's no condemnation, it means that the penalty that, that you deserve, that I deserve, has been absorbed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God's vengeance was inflicted against his son on the cross on your behalf so that you could experience his salvation. By accepting the terms of peace that are offered in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you enter his kingdom and you have peace and joy eternal. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, Lord, we are grateful for these terms of peace. Father, we, are, we stand in awe before you as we consider the day of vengeance, the day of judgment. And, and Lord, our hearts are fearful for those that don't know you. And yet, Lord, we're grateful for this taste of peace and hope and joy in the Holy Ghost that we have right now, entering your kingdom by faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray that, that all those who hear would humble themselves before you, the God who is able and willing to save. And Father, we, we praise you through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would receive the glory and honor and praise due your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.